Today is March 1st. Welcome to Neuroscientist Talk Shop, the University of Texas at San Antonio's neuroscience podcast. I'm your host, Salma Qureshi. So our guest today is John Manch, who is professor and chair of biomedical sciences at Marquette University. Hi, John. Hi. Um, his lab uses a diverse range of behavioral, neurochemical, and cellular slash molecular approaches to determine the neurobiological mechanisms that underlie addiction and relapse. So around the room, we have uh, Carlos Palladini. Hello. We have Matt Wannett. Howdy. We have Charlie Wilson. Hi. And Todd Troyer. Hello. So, okay, let's get into this. So a, a, a big focus of your lab centers on the intersection of stress and addiction in the context of a preclinical animal model of stress-induced relapse. And in your work, you're using a behavioral model to map a circuit that controls a response and then defining an array of molecular players and receptors that modulate and cause plasticity and various types of changes to like neuronal excitability in that in that circuit, right? So there's so much in there, and we're hopefully going to get to a lot of it. But let's start with the behavior. So foot shock induced cocaine reinstatement is is how you model stress relapse behavior itself. And then I'm hoping you can sort of start talking about the circuit that you're mapping that onto. Sure. So um, foot shock induced uh, drug seeking is one of the behaviors. We also look at other ways that stress can can promote the ability of other things to uh, to, to generate drug-seeking behavior. So the foot shock-induced um, model uh, basically involves uh, rats. We do most of our work in rats, trained to self-administer cocaine through an intravenous uh, a catheter uh, by pressing a lever. Um, depending on the conditions, uh, the animals can either take a lot of cocaine, uh, six, six to 10 hours a day, or, or just a little bit, one to two hours a day over a 14-day period. And uh, after self-administration, we extinguish the behavior, and then we try to bring it back using our reinstatement approach. And there are two ways that we can test for how stress causes drug-seeking behavior, contributes to drug-seeking behavior. The first way is we can look at the ability of stress to directly trigger drug use. And in those situations, we give stress through the grid floor of the uh, self-administration chamber and uh, look at its ability to cause the animals to start pressing the lever again um, in, in our relapse model. Under some conditions, however, when we give stress in that way, it doesn't cause uh, or doesn't trigger relapse behavior. And in those situations, when we have experiments designed to specifically capture the conditions that, that create that type of drug seeking, we can give stress um, in combination with other triggers for drug use and what we see is a potentiation effect. And so the reason I'm distinguishing between those two models is that there's mechanis- mechanistic divergence in terms of the pathways and the signaling molecules that seem to be involved in how stress contributes to drug-seeking using each paradigm. So what about the long acts? So the, one of those is the, the higher cocaine intake and the lower, and that's the, what people call the long access and short access. What is that differentiating? Yeah, so what we think happens is with excessive cocaine use, uh, the, the drug use that we get under our long access conditions, again, which is 6 to 10 hours a day over a uh, 14-day period, is that you have recruitment of uh, signaling processes that um, more directly connect uh, stress-related and motivational uh, circuitry in the brain, including the circuitry that's involved in drug-seeking behavior. So as an example, with long-access self-administration, we can see not only robust stress-induced relapse behavior, but we see the emergent ability of CRF when delivered into important nodes of the mesocortical uh, system to be able to directly drive uh, drug use. So we have recruitment, we have neuroadaptations that occur in an intake-dependent manner. 
And among those are changes in receptors. Uh, it also looks like there are likely downstream changes in the mesocortical pathway, um, possibly in the cortex, maybe in the nucleus accumbens. But uh, this, we think, is uh, something that happens in the people who use kind of large amounts of drugs over extended periods of time. So you have so the emergence of plasticity. What's, what's the withdrawal state of mystechidic cocaine over six hours every day versus mystechidic over two hours every day at the time, the beginning of each day when they're going to start their next session? Uh, that's a great question. We haven't we haven't looked at it directly. You know, we know that uh, we have some anxiety related phenotypes that emerge maybe about tw- maybe about twenty four hours after uh, drug self administration. Um, it changes over time, so we do see changes in stress reactive systems. And one of the things that's really interesting, and I, um, uh, this is something we we published a while back, and I haven't talked a lot about recently, is that. Uh, we see a shift in stress responsiveness at about the time frame when we typically test for reinstatement after long access self-administration that tends to look like the animals are taking a more active um, risk assessment type of response when confronted with a stressful stimulus. Yeah, so, so like so. elevated plus maze or uh, right. open field, they, they tend to, to have kind of a not a traditional, a typical anxiety response, but rather um, they spend more time in the open arms of the uh, plus maze. They, they enter a light dark box, the light chamber um, with a shorter latency, more time in the open field. And that's surprising. And then acutely right after, 24 hours after the long access self-administration, we see the opposite of that. We see a more, more um, kind of anxiogenic type of response. So something changes with this plasticity, not just in how they respond to drugs, but I think in how they respond and adapt to uh, stressors that they're confronted with. So, because there's there's a not, there's a difference between not only how much drug they take, right, but the the period that they take the drugs, right. So after two hours, the mice then get access to cocaine twenty two hours afterwards, whereas uh, six or ten hours they only get cocaine eighteen to sixteen hours afterwards. So not fourteen. 16th. Well, I can't do my math right, right. now. Right. But um, so, if there is some some process that takes a certain amount of time to develop, right, a stress response or anxiolytic response, as you just mentioned, uh-huh. does that isn't that a confound in those two types of models? So, has anyone ever done, for example, taken the two-hour access, but then given two-hour access every 18 hours, for example? So I, I guess what you're asking, is this an intake-dependent phenomenon, or is it a pattern? Or is it a pattern, right? So is, 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 just a, is just a frequency of access what really matters? Yeah, you know, we, we really don't know. And, and, you know, so certainly it could be frequency of access. It could be total in, net intake. It could, you know, there's a dose contribution as well. We've messed around with different doses of cocaine. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know. And, and I think what you're, what you're referring to is true when it comes to kind of the acute behavioral pattern, because we can also see escalation of drug self-administration in these rats. So yeah. that's probably your 24-hour indicator that in the long-axis animals, they, they escalate their use. Um, um, as far so as what the pattern day, is. Over days? You mean? Over days, yeah. But remember, we're testing for reinstatement, you know, 21 days out you know, after the last self-administration session. So they've been drug-free for quite some time. It doesn't mean that that earlier pattern can't 
determine exactly how that drug seeking occurs. Mm-hmm. And that it, may, it probably is very important. We just haven't studied it yet. Isn't it in the human population that people who just party on the weekends or something like that tend to be okay? I mean, of course, it's impossible to tell if it's a genetic predisposition or not. But then people who sort of drink every day become alcoholics more frequently than people who just drink on the weekends or drink socially, um, even though over a year time period they may drink the same amount. Yeah, you know, I think it's anthropomorphizing a little bit when it I say is. that we're looking yeah, at, yeah. like, the recreational users with their two hours and the hardcore, yeah, you know, yeah. bingers. With, but I think there's something there. And this actually, what's what's interesting is this has been studied at some level in human populations. So uh, I think Helen Fox from Regida Sinna's lab at Yale University did some work where they looked at um, the intensity of craving and the physiological stress responses in uh, different populations of drug users who had either high-frequency or low-frequency use histories. And what they saw was somewhat similar to what we found, is that the uh, magnitude, so they, what they did is they, they uh, segregated these uh, uh, drug-dependent individuals based on their, the use patterns. They generated um, scripts based on past stressful life events that had been related to drug use. And then they read those scripts back to the patients and looked at the magnitude of subjective craving using rating scales, and then also looked at a number of physiologicals, uh, everything from like uh, you know galvanic skin response and ACTH and cord yeah. And what they found is that, similar to what we found with the long axis and short axis uh, uh, distinction, the high frequency users had higher craving, higher stress reactivity as measured by physiological responses than the, than the uh, low-frequency so, users. Yeah, so then, I, I think the question actually, you're getting at is... It will, so, I think, I, wait, so I think I know... So <laughs> one way that we possibly address this... So I just started doing this in mice, and I noticed that there's high individual variability yeah. <laughs> among mice. And, and um, is, is it possible that there are some mice in the two-hour sessions that take a lot of cocaine, and then some mice in the six-hour sessions that take very little cocaine, so that those two groups of mice have equivalent amounts of cocaine taken. And then do we see a difference in that those subgroups within between right. mice that take X amount of cocaine in the six-hour sessions versus mice that take the same X amount of cocaine in the two-hour sessions? Do we see any difference among those two groups? Well, the closest we've come to being able to demonstrate that, because I know what you're saying, is um, we, we just did a study where we, we had, for whatever reason, we had some uh, vari- variation in intake more than we expected in our long and short axis animals. And what we did is we put all of those animals into, a, uh, into one regression analysis and looked mm-hmm. at, I, I think in this case, we're looking at phosphoreactivity and uh, um, uh, TH positive cells in the uh, in the VTA, and we were able to see a pretty strong correlation. Now, I don't, need, and I know that's different than what you're saying, right? Is yeah. either high and low responders and under any conditions, and, and certainly I think that's true that, that we know that there are there are susceptible and, and resilient people when it comes to a range of responses, including addiction. Um, but we yeah we haven't we haven't really broken things down in that way yet. How about how about extinction? Is there the extinction patterns, where there's large individual differences that might uh, make a difference on susceptibility to relapse, uh, and that's a great question. Surprisingly, in in many in most of our work where we've looked at long versus short access animals, we you know maybe we haven't looked under the right conditions, but we haven't seen pronounced differences in extinction responding 
um, which surprised us. You would think that you know the, the ex extinction is is a combination of uh, responding, you know, under drug-free conditions. So there's a little bit of context conditioning involved there, and then there's also you know the the, the rate that you know the behavior. Um, they, they learn, learn that, that they're not getting reinforced. We haven't seen a lot of differences there, so we haven't really been able to use that as, as, as kind of a variable. But, um, yeah, it's a, that's a great question. If you don't know anything about... This is an easy question for me to yeah. ask. If you don't know anything about the drug abuse behavior field, and you just listen to the description of the experiment, it sounds like you're asking the animals to forget extinction. So... They learned that hitting that lever doesn't get them any cocaine. And then you put them in some situation, and now they start hitting that lever again as if they don't remember that they learned that it doesn't yeah. give them any cocaine. That's not how it's usually interpreted, but tell me what's wrong with that way, I think. No, no, I, I mean, I think there's probably some element of that, and, um, you know, there are ways to determine if it's that or if it's something else. Uh, uh, certainly, there are a number of groups that are, are looking at voluntary abstinence models and relapse without having to extinguish the behavior. So I, I do think that there's, there's maybe a component. If, and if it is that, then the question is, how, how well does that translate to what's happening in people? Because people aren't extinguishing necessarily, right? People are abstaining voluntarily from drugs. Right. And Although if all of a sudden you have that construct creeping in... When they get, when they get thrown into jail, it's pretty much an extinction <laughs> protocol. Yeah, I guess you have that. <laughs> you can't work for it. I mean, that's one of the big problens behind it, is there isn't sort of an operant type... I mean, in essence, the, the equivalent of extinction would be an alcoholic going to the bar and drinking water every single day, right. which is pretty or much ordering, what ordering they don't... Ordering whiskey don't... and getting water. And getting yeah. water, exactly. And getting yeah. water. <laughs> so I think, uh, actually, with, the, with Q-induced reinstatement, it's, it seems like it's learning on top of learning, right? So, yeah. so the mice take cocaine, they go through the extinction protocol, and they learn that that, and, um, that that protocol now no longer gives them any cocaine, and that's because they're no longer getting any cues that were usually associated with getting cocaine. And then when you put them in the reinstatement session, they receive those cues, and they suddenly start taking a lot that's more cocaine. The, actually, that's so, I was kind of thinking along those lines, because yeah. if I learn something, I, uh, like I learn that that lever doesn't get me any cocaine anymore, yeah. and then I'm in a new situation, right? then I think, well, maybe what I learned isn't relevant anymore in this new situation. Maybe now, in this situation, the, it does work. Yeah. So in the case of cues, you use a cue to create some ambiguity about the meaning of the... Of right. the that's one way of thinking. You just about remove it. the cues. Yeah. And in the case of stress, maybe the, it is a, like a change in context, only now the context is internal. Interceptive, in, in, right. Yeah. Yeah, and I think people, you know, we, we've, we've actually, you know, we've, we've tried to kind of capture that. Uh, yeah, construct, you know, it'd be nice to, to figure out whether or not the effects that we see generalize to a a voluntary abstinence approach. And Yvine Shaham and others are showing that they can either through through a punishment type of uh, a paradigm or introduction uh, of a conspecific, uh, kind of so they have this kind of social interaction, they, or even alternative reinforcement, without extinguishing um, the behavior, they can actually suppress drug seeking. And what we haven't done and we'd like to is go back and look at whether you know, or not stress can have the same effects under those conditions, in which case that would maybe suggest that it's not simply this 
this uh, you know, retrieval type of thing or, or offsetting of extinction learning. Yeah, it, it, it sure is. Yeah. So, so how are you transducing, like how is stress transduced for neurons? What are the factors that you're looking at? So one of the things that you look at is, I guess, CRF and what happens to CRF during foot shock? And again, it depends on the paradigm. We have a triggering uh, reinstatement paradigm and then a stage setting paradigm where, where stress doesn't directly trigger but promotes uh, uh, responding to other stress triggers. And depending on which of those paradigms we're looking at, the, the signaling is, is different, which I think is fascinating because we've always studied stress-induced relapse using one approach, and, and it turns out that that may not be what's happening in most people. You know, maybe we've been off, and maybe that's why we've had such difficulties translating you know, some, of the, uh, some of the preclinical findings that we have to, to clinical situations. But in terms of the triggered reinstatement, uh, we've done a lot of work, and others have done work, suggesting that you have ascending noradrenergic signaling, and um, um, that, that enters that uh, innervates the uh, bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, which is part of the extended amygdala. Uh, in the bed nucleus of the stria terminalis, um, you have integration with other inputs from like the amygdala and, and other other components of, uh, of of the extended amygdala, and then you also have local CRF that's released, but you have it. At the end of the day, you have a beta-2 adrenergic receptor-driven activation of um, neurons in the bed nucleus cystria terminalis that release CRF into the ventral tegmental area. And in the ventral tegmental area, there's a lot of debate about what CRF is doing. And, and my view on it is that it's a peptide. I mean, it, it's, it's not functioning as a, as a neurotransmitter. It's probably coordinating the activity of, of the VTA through multiple mechanisms. And, and I know, you know, Matt and I have talked a lot about this. Uh, you know, there are CRF receptors presynaptic, postsynaptic. They're probably on astrocytes. There's all kinds of stuff that's been coordinated there. But what we're finding is that you have activation of a CRFR1 receptor. And we think at least part of what that CRFR1 receptor is doing is that it's localized on uh, dopamine neurons. And it's regulating at least, although we haven't you know, tested if it's only this population, the dopamine neurons in the ventral tegmental area that project to the prelimbic cortex. And what that appears to be doing is releasing dopamine into the prelimbic cortex. And that, that dopamine in the prelimbic cortex through a similarly ambiguous mechanism, which is amazing to me that we still don't know what dopamine is exactly doing in the... Um, it seems to be working through D1 receptors in the cortex, and that D1 receptor activation probably promotes excitability of a pathway from the prelimbic cortex to the nucleus accumbens core. And we haven't tested that directly yet, but others uh, from the Calivus group and, and, and other people who study relapse behavior suggest that that pathway from the prelimbic cortex to the nucleus accumbens core is a pretty critical pathway for drug seeking, possibly across classes of drugs. So I was wondering. I mean, so you've got this sort of delineate, this difference between these long access and short access animals. And you know that CRF can pretty much engage this reinstatement in the long access animals. Have you done any sort of specific manipulations where, or has anybody done any manipulations to sort of convert a long access animal into a short access animal and turn a short access animal into a long access animal? Like, other than sort of pharmacologically just sort of giving CRF, has anybody sort of tweaked the system by upregulation of CRF R1 receptors or stimulating BNSD input, you know, anywhere mm -hmm. on that? Because I mean, in some ways, that's a sort of an exciting way to potentially, you know, if you're fate mapped and you're at this state, you would like to have some sort of intervention to sort of reverse it back down to sort of a low intake. Because, you know, you can't really cure drug addiction, but you want to reduce the incidence of relapse, you know, as a chronically relapsing. And so are there any 
any mechanistic studies that have dealt at that. So you're talking about by preventing drug effects early on, by per, or, interfering or, with the... Because we've done, I mean, because when you're talking about uh, going from no reinstatement under short access conditions to robust reinstatement under long access conditions, yeah, there are a number of anybody who's blocked, you know, shock and reinstatement may be providing some information there, but... But yeah, like it, you know, if you see an upregulation of CRFR1 receptors, which I think you, you, you demonstrate, you had some MR, um, in situ data suggesting that, has anybody done sort of any, you know, viral approach, SIA, RNA or something, or yeah. is, is this a grant that you're... No, we've been working on it, um, and, and so yeah, that's certainly something we want to do, and we'd love to do it in, in an intersectional way, because mm -hmm. I think one of the problems with CRF in the eventual tegmental area is where it is, and where it isn't really matters. And, and so when you're, you know, when you're manipulating receptor expression in this region, it's, it's probably, uh, we think it's really important to be precise. Mm -hmm. And we just, we're trying to develop the tools to be able to target CRFR1 receptor expression in specific neuronal populations, either based on where they, they feel the projection or their phenotype. And, and so we just haven't gotten there yet. Now, one indirect piece of evidence that kind of gets at what you're asking is we know that establishing CRF responsiveness in the ventral tegmental area is dependent on elevated glucocorticoids. So we know that we can effectively make a long-axis rat look like a short-axis rat if we eliminate the adrenal response during the long-axis self-administration, like when the, when the drug exposure is hypothetically producing whatever plasticity is causing later stress responsiveness. So that brings up sort of, I mean, relating to something that sort of Carlos brought up before is the sort of, not necessarily cross-sensitization in this manner, but the intersection between stress and drug abuse and the fact that the offset or the intake you have of the drug, you know, can potentially be stressful or being in a different withdrawal state. And how much of that is then sort of subsequently driving then the behavior sort of from the next day, you know, I, because by taking the drug, you know, the, the older studies of sort of cross-sensitization, um, larger body of literature on that, that, <clears throat> that, you know, stress itself can actually potentiate a cocaine response and a cocaine response can sort of potentiate a stress response. And it's sort of a chicken and the egg. And do you think they're sort of separable, one follows the other, or is it just sort of a happenstance that they can both cross-sensitize with one another? Well, we've done some studies where we've given short-access animals stress at the time of drug use, mm -hmm. and uh, we, we find that they look like long-access animals. So it, it, it very well may be that just having elevated glucocorticoids sufficiently to install the plasticity, and you probably have to have the proper synaptic comp, comp, context and, you know, behavioral context. So I think there's, I think it is, you know, largely the degree to which you have HPA activation. I'm sure it's much more nuanced than that, but uh, I think that's a big part of it. We know that long-axis animals have a more robust, uh, more prolonged daily elevation of glucocorticoids compared to short-axis animals. So even though you have an activation with short-axis animals, it could be that you don't have enough of an activation. That seems, I mean, uh, again, I'm not looking at this from within the field necessarily, but it just seems so exciting. And this is like getting us closer to a an operational definition of what addiction is at the physiological level. And I guess I, we don't really know that, do we? I mean, there isn't really a sort of fundamental physiological difference between the addicted and the non-addicted that we can point to, right, at the level of the CNS. 
Or is that not, I mean, I'm No, no, I think it's true. I'm a little reluctant to wade into that debate because it's been a debate that's, that's been ongoing. Uh, there are different ways uh, for defining, you know, addiction using preclinical models. And it's not all escalated behavior and heightened relapse susceptibility. There's resistance to, uh, you know, punishment, for example, that's, that's used as an indicator. Um, some people think the transition from goal-directed to habitual uh, behavior is important. Um, and, and, and there's been a lot of debate, uh, you know, I think it was about maybe eight years ago that there, there was really this, this very public, uh, you know, um, uh, conversation about, about what a preclinical model of addiction should or should not look like. But are there such profound differences in long access versus short access in other types of uh, behavioral and circuit level assays? Like, have you, or, or is this something particular to the kind of work that you're doing? Yeah, there are. I mean, we can find some differences, but the, the I think the argument is that that's not the only way you can have such differences. And under short access conditions, and I think that's what uh, you know Carlos was suggesting earlier was that uh, you know there are some some animals that just have either you know, genetic predisposition or, or environmental influences such that even you know exposure to moderate levels of drug can can you know reveal some sort of addiction phenotype. Um, yeah, we're, we're, you know, certainly I, I'm not saying that we're trying to study addiction. We're really focused on relapse and we've tried to leverage conditions where that particular variable changes uh, in terms of stress-induced relapse. And then we're hoping that we can define the mechanisms there and then um, other people can kind of define. It's almost like the NIMH model, except with addiction, where we're trying to isolate the constructs, relapse versus, you know, uh, um, uh, Behavioral inflexibility versus escalation versus uh, you know um, withdrawal-related uh, phenomena, and, and we're hoping that if we can kind of figure out some of the f- mechanisms that are involved in this, um, that can get us a little closer to the answer to the problem. I know I'm hedging on this <laughs> just a little bit. I'm, I'm afraid to answer it because it, it no, is such been, a it is it has been such a hot button um, topic in, in our field. So how how unified is the concept of uh, stress? Like, <laughs> I mean, that's got to be just as bad, right? In terms of, yeah, I mean, we're shocking animals in a in a chamber, right? I mean, is that really? I mean, that has a noxious component. How does that relate to you know somebody having uh, somebody's relationship falling apart or something? I I think the safest thing, at least with the stage setting model, I feel a little more comfortable because a lot we can produce a lot of our our uh, our findings by just elevating corticosterone, which should you know, at least mechanistically cover, you know, by most definitions, what we consider to be stressful. The shock model, you know, I think it's a little, it's, a, you know, I think that it's a matter of debate and, and it's tricky because we've, we've tried other stressors. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the good thing about the shock exposure is it can occur within the drug context, which, which we think is very important. Um, and, uh, you know, you're not necessarily dealing with, uh, Things like uh, terminating stress and then all of a sudden introducing a safe environment or safety cues, which can really confound interpretation as it relates especially to things like dopamine signaling. So it's not an ideal model. And, um, you know, we're, 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 it, it's just another reason why our shock-triggered reinstatement studies, you know, we have to be very careful about how we inter- interpret. We're, we're using a physical stressor that has a noxious component. We're using extinction rather than voluntary abstinence. And... Uh, you know, we're dealing with a situation where, 
you know, stress is affecting drug seeking in a way that might be a little different than what's reported in clinical populations. So all of those reasons are, are, are reasons why I'm a little more excited about the newer model that we're working on. It matches the clinical situation. We can see the effects just by elevating corticosterone. And um, we can also see other stressors uh, cause the potentiation effect. We haven't published those data yet, so I can't talk about them too much, but it seems to generalize across stressors a little more than the stress-triggered reinstatement does. So how does the stage setting relate? How does it uh, compare to chronic stress? Is it at all part of that continuum, or is it is that actually modeling chronic? Or? No, no, I think it's just um, it's still episodic stress. Hmm. But um, clinical researchers, uh, Kenzie Preston and NIDA and, and David Epstein and others have, have shown that um, the relationship between stress and drug use in clinical populations is, is a little more complex. It's not as simple as all of a sudden you have this the onset of some sort of episodic stressor and, and you're using drugs again. You have kind of this context, this background of stress, and then you encounter a cue or a context or use a little bit of drug, and all of a sudden that that trigger becomes much more powerful when stress is, is there. And, and so that's what we've tried to model. And then we were surprised and excited to see that this is biologically different in terms of the mechanism. And that, I guess, gets to your earlier question in terms of mechanism. This involves elevated glucocorticoids, effects in multiple brain regions, including the nucleus accumbens and prelimbic cortex, multiple mechanisms, which includes reduced uh, dopamine clearance in the nucleus accumbens through this... Uh, um, what used to be classified as uptake two or one transporter that mediates uptake two, the organic cation transporter three, and then mobilization of cannabinoids in the cortex. So I think it provides us with a model that may have more relevance and, and it might give us some new targets that we haven't really tried to leverage. So uh, along those lines, I mean, so Yvonne Shaham has been talking about all of our models for addiction are horrible. And, uh, <laughs> um, and there's, I think, quite a bit of truth to that. Yeah. And I mean, what you said for, from the clinical or, you know, the, the clinical perspective is the fact that there's this underlying baseline level of stress that the individuals are experiencing. And has anybody started to look at the whole entire experience of self-administration and extinction? I mean, getting back to extinction, does that sort of alter their extinction profile? If you mm -hmm. have this sort of chronic stressor sort of background, um, you know, whether it's their, you know, they're pair housed and then you remove your buddy. And so, you know, I mean, just even sort of subtle social type stressors. Um, has anybody sort of looked at that, this, you know, prolonged minor stress mapped on top of these sort of standard, you know, paradigms that everybody's been using? Yeah, I think for extinction, a lot of people have done it, not always in the context of drug seeking. And, and it's complicated because, uh, you know, you have numerous processes involved in extinction. You have, you know, retrieval related processes, you have consolidation and reconsolidation processes, and they all have their own neurobiology and they're all affected by stress, but oftentimes in different ways. Uh, in terms of drug self-administration, um, you know, we have, we, we've, we've actually, we've, we've published some work and, uh, and shown that stress at the time of drug use in short access animals will indeed escalate. So we give shock at the time of drug self-administration. So we have a paradigm where it's five minutes of shock, 30 minutes of self-administration, another five minutes of shock. And then over time, those animals escalate their drug use. And if we test them later on for relapse, their relapse is heightened as well. So I think there, there's probably something, we don't know what the mechanism is, except that it's glucocorticoid dependent. Maybe it's GR, glucocorticoid receptor, maybe it's OCT3, maybe it's endocannabinoids. Um, you know, my postdoc would be angry with me if I told uh, 
told the story right now because it's, uh, she just got a K award to, to be able to study this and she hasn't published it yet. But I think, I think what you're, yeah, what you're suggesting is absolutely true that we have all of these kind of non, um, all these other effects of stress that we're, we're characterizing are probably at play throughout the addiction process and cycle. Well, that's, yeah, yeah. One of the cool things about what you've done is to distinguish CRF release inside the brain from CRF release and the peripheral result. So, and then that, of course, that feeds back on the brain, but the direct, there's a direct CRF pathways in the brain that you have manipulated directly. So, does that mean, is there like an internal stress that doesn't require a glucocorticoid component? It's just the brain stress. Now, I think both are there. And because we know that, um, you know, that the responses are there, it's just a matter of when they're operational. So, um, we think that, uh, you know, in the animals that have the long access history and are kind of our rock star, <laughs> you know, style, uh, um, uh, uh, you know, drug users, they, the, whatever the glucocorticoids are doing may be contributing to, to relapse in other ways, but, uh, the CRF system is recruited and becomes the dominant, you know, driver for drug seeking. Um, the glucocorticoid story seems to be, you know, the glucocorticoid response is there, but it just, it, it's, it, it contributes, I guess, in a, in a different way. It's involved in plasticity. It's involved in the stage setting effects. Um, so I guess, uh, if I could, yeah, maybe, maybe if, I I, could, if I could just release CRF in my brain and not any, not mm-hmm. have any glucocorticoid component, what would that feel like? That's a good question. And there, you know, George Kube and others are actually developing medications targeting glucocorticoid receptors. And, and so it may be that what you're doing is, um, so, so not increasing CRF in your brain. Yeah, that, this, this, is a, this is another area of great debate because I think there have been some pretty prominent clinical trial failures with CRFR1 antagonists. Uh, pretty much um, every single one. Yeah, well, you know, and, and the question is why is there failure? And, and so, so one, one the, the kind of uh, glass half full view is that, well, maybe these drugs aren't getting into the brain um, so as, what as were, well as these we are think for treatment for what? For um, alcoholism, and uh, um, there's some other uh, there's some other clinical trials related to anxiety, um, and, and so there's a company. Uh, there's a company that has been developing CRF antagonists for quite some time. With the idea that inside the brain, CRF receptors were playing some role in anxiety. Or exactly. Yeah. Addiction. And and those trials, as Matt said, have been largely negative. Now, the question is, how well are those drugs penetrating into the brain and hitting the targets that we need them to? And how are the companies defining brain penetrance? Um, you know, I think a lot of it has been uh, fMRI um, signaling in, in brain regions, which, sure, maybe that, that's a good indicator. But, you know, we know that there's there are CRF uh, um, receptors throughout the body, and, and you could have changes, for example, in, in vagal afferents and other things. So you might be getting a positive signal in the brain, but without the drug actually penetrating in and doing what you want it to do at the site where you want it and to be And that's not the receptor that's acting in the peripheral nervous system. Oh, uh, no, it is. The CRFR1 receptor is the receptor that regulates so the HPA function. Yeah, when you give a CRF antagonist, um, that, that 
that can penetrate into the brain, you should be blocking both the uh, hormonal response and the uh, peptidergic and response in these systems. And even that doesn't have any clinical uh, efficacy? Well, maybe it depends on your model, and it depends on... I mean, again, uh, there are people who think glucocorticoid signaling can be leveraged uh, to treat alcoholism and, and other... So if that's true, then the upstream signal for this glucocorticoid receptors and whatever regulates it, including the CRFR1 receptors, should be potential. So if I block, to get back to my question about what things feel like, which interests me, so if I blocked all my CRF receptors with some effective one yeah. of these drugs, then I should be very chill, or I should never get stressed out at all. Yeah, and unfortunately, that's true. It looks like that's true if you're a rat. Um, but it doesn't necessarily seem to be true if you're a person right now, and yeah. at least that's that's what the data have suggested up to this point. Whether there's another, there's another reason for that or not, I, I don't so know. So if it doesn't actually make people never get stressed out, then of course it wouldn't have any effect on anxiety or drug abuse right. or any of the other things that stress is supposed to. And that's, that's, I think, the big question. Are we dealing with a species-specific signaling system that um, you know works perfectly in these preclinical models because we are one of many labs studying CRF signaling as it relates to uh, to relapse and, and anxiety and depression and, and things are pretty positive across the board. Um, so so you know is it because there's a species difference? Is it because of the known limitations to developing a an agonist for peptide receptor as far as pharmacokinetics and getting it where you want to go? Um, you know, or is is it that we're not studying it the right way in the right population in, in humans? And I think it could be any of those things. So I'd actually like to posit another one out there. Is everybody we, we talk about CRF and we almost say it's it equals stress. Yeah. And yes, we see it is always being you know a host of stressors will end up Whenever you know increasing stress, the release of it happens. it happens. But the thing is. It's been a problematic, very, very few studies who've been able, because it's a peptide, to be able to look at its release. And um, Roy Wise, I think, was one of the only ones that sort of pops to mind where they, you, we do know this foot shock stress, you know, over two-hour period can increase, you know, um, CRF levels in the VTA. But we don't know under what other circumstances. I mean, it's a peptide. Yeah. It's being, it, it's a neuropeptide. And CRF could be released under so many other circumstances other than stress. So we're sort of conflating this idea that, CRF equals stress, and you know maybe, maybe it's CRF is and not a cause. I mean, it's, yeah, it's it's a peptide. It's something that it, it is a stress release neuropeptide. I feel like it's almost the safest way, but a lot of people like to throw it in and say it equals stress. Just took yeah. CRF and see if that are there really only two receptor thing. types for CRF? There are, but there, there's a complex signaling system. So there's also a binding protein oh. that seems to direct the uh, the peptide to one of the receptors or the other, and maybe cause it to signal differently. Um, and then the, the receptors are everywhere. And then I'm sure that, you know, there's, there's a lot we don't know about this. You know, how is it processed? You know, where is it processed? What's its field of action once it's released? We don't even know where it's being released from. It, you know, we, we know that likely there's a CRF releasing uh, projection from the bed nucleus, but others have shown that dopamine neurons themselves might be able to produce and release CRF. So there's really an interesting, you know, it's an interesting thing to study. Um, it's just, you know, I don't think it's led to the uh, kind of fruits that, that people hoped it would as it relates to uh, to medications. I mean, I'm still hopeful, uh, you know, but maybe it's, it's because I'm, I'm, I have a lot invested a great, in the story. <laughs> it's a great plug for all our grad students and fellows who are feeling like they want to rev up and hit some new interesting areas. So 
I think we're running short on time, unfortunately, so I'm going to have to cut us off. And um, thank you for joining us, John Mansch. This has been Neuroscientist Talk Shop. Thank you. Thank you.